Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical with another great episode of Hills and Valleys. And we have a special guest who's come back on. This is a vintage, vintage guest from our early days that we had the pleasure of meeting uh, a couple years ago. And that's Colonel Kevin Chung, who's the chair and professor of medicine over at the Uniformed Services University. Dr. Chung, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Omar, for inviting me back. Um, I guess the first episode went okay. So It was a great episode. I still get a lot of comments from... Uh, from physicians and, and healthcare leaders on it because it was a fantastic episode. I'm going to leave that in the show notes for those of yeah. those of the audience who haven't actually listened to it yet. And you know, before we, we have a great topic today, we want to hear about what's going on with you and how your uh, uh, time has been at USU, but also talk about updates in COVID. But I have to I have to call this out. Mm-hmm. I knew you when you didn't have a, a whole lot of Twitter followers many years ago. <laughs> and, and now, I mean, you got thousands of people who follow you and not just in the medical community. There's plenty of people who I know who are in government, uh, politics and, and other are- arenas who follow you as a, as a trusted source on Twitter. Um, and I'll leave your uh, Twitter handle down there. But um, yeah, I mean, how, it seems like the Twitter community has really embraced you. And, and I mean, how does it feel? Yeah, th- thanks, Omar. I-, I still consider myself a bit of a novice in terms of Twitter, you know, um, uh, compared to, uh, you know, many of my colleagues that, that are out there with, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, uh, just having a few few thousand isn't that big of a deal, I, I don't think. And, you know, I- I'm, um, you know, f- fortunate to, to have, um, you know, experienced uh, what I've experienced through through this pandemic. And unfortunately, we just sort of all of us got thrown into um, you know, the wolves and, and um, you know, we're drinking from a fire hose trying to deal with a disease that nobody knows anything about. And, you know, um, Twitter was really my uh, source uh, for uh, information for me. And so I, I relied on uh, many of my colleagues and, and their posts. And really, I just uh, started tweeting my experience taking care of uh, patients within the, uh, you know, uh, setting of uh, Walter Reed and um, other hospitals that I work at. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. So, you know, I'm, I'm uh, happy to share my experience, but uh, I'm, I, I feel like I get more, much more out of Twitter than, than what I'm able to contribute. <laughs> I, think, I think we all definitely, uh, we, we definitely feel that way. And, um, you know, what's, uh, what I think is interesting is that, you know, you, you, this is, you know, go, this is definitely, this pandemic is new for all of us but you're very much well-versed in dealing with crises like this. Cause I remember you mentioned that you were really influenced in your training early on. Cause you, you lived through critical care medicine during nine 11. Um, and so I think, you know, hearing from you and, and your perspective is going to be incredibly valuable. And uh, before we launch into one thing I do have to mention, so we're one week uh, post veterans day. So happy belated uh, veterans day. And thank you very much for your service. And one thing I do want to mention to your audience is like, it's, it's great to thank our veterans on, on, on the day of, but I don't think it should be limited to one day. I think that we should always find a way to thank our veterans because at the end of the day, we have uh, brave people like you who sign up and whatever our country asks you to do, whether it's plant flowers or go off to war or be on the front lines, you, you, you do it and serve our country. And so I'm, I'm very grateful and, and appreciative of that. Well, I appreciate the support, Omar. Thank you. Absolutely. For 
Absolutely. So why don't we do a quick, you know, give us a quick update on things at, at USU. You've done a lot of great things there as, as chair and, you know, get, tell us, tell us what's, what's new. Yeah. Thanks, Omar. So, you know, since our last conversation, um, we were, uh, you know, things were uh, progressing pretty nicely within my department. I was trying to set up, uh, you know, multiple research efforts um, really tied around uh, diagnostics and therapeutics uh, in sepsis. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, as we were gearing up to get uh, a number of programs up and running, the pandemic hit mm-hmm. and really changed everything. And all of a sudden we had to um, really uh, rally around uh, this crisis, this crisis that all of us were uh, were facing, and uh, help address it as a team. And so, um, it, it was really an all hands on deck situation uh, across the the country. I mean, if, if uh, since you follow Twitter, you know that everybody was uh, uh, really uh, galvanized and and really united in helping prepare uh, healthcare workers and and the public for for this crisis. And so as we were hearing stuff from Italy and reports from China and, and you know, the, the, the reports that, that were just mind-blowing with hospitals being overrun and uh, triage conditions that were occurring in, in Italy, uh, that really woke us up as a medical community. And, and it, you know, the military medical system was, was no different. So we all uh, prepared as, as best we, as we could. One of the things that we did uh, was, you know, we're a global health system. It's not, you know, we're different in that uh, the military uh, as a health system has hospitals all around the globe, you know, mm-hmm. one hospitals in total, uh, over 300 clinics. And so uh, trying to prepare globally as a military health system uh, was a bit of a challenge. Uh, I and, imagine. And trying to standardize care. So we're not talking about one city or one region, we're talking about globally, how do we uh, begin to communicate and uh, how do we begin to standardize care across the board? And so uh, we created, uh, we initially created a um, practice management guide. Uh, We wanted to call it a clinical uh, practice guideline, but there are certain rules involved uh, with declaring that something is a clinical practice guideline. And we didn't have time to uh, have the document go through all the checks and balances mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for it to be officially called the clinical practice guideline. And so over a weekend, seriously, over a weekend, uh, we had, uh, I enlisted the help of uh, 30 of my colleagues. We wow. put a guidance document that we called the practice management guide uh, and uh, really just went uh, through um you know, this is how you uh, screen. This is how you initially uh, treat. This is how you, uh, uh, you know, um, triage patients for the ICU. This is these are some uh, uh, baseline guidance uh, for treating patients uh, uh, who are critically ill, uh, so on and so forth. It initially was about a sixty-page document. Uh, you know. Uh, we, we tried to make it as concise as possible, but as we started writing the, the document, we realized that we wanted to cover, uh, you know, sort of broad areas uh, to include deployed uh, medicine and austere, uh, you know, care in the austere environment and, and uh, other things. And so 
uh, obviously infectious control, PPE posture, uh, surge capacity, how to deal with, uh, you know, when, when your hospital and ICUs get overwhelmed, what, you know, what guidance do we have? And so we, we created this document uh, initially was about with about 30 providers uh, and released it immediately, uh, sort of like uh, the burn resuscitation guidelines that we uh, long ago uh, sort of disseminated widely overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. This was a document that we disseminated through uh, DHA, uh, Defense Health Affairs, and we were able to do this. And um, uh, it was well, well received because it helped put everybody on the same page. Um, and fast forward till now, we are now on our sixth version. It's over 150 pages. It pretty much encompasses the entire gamut of uh, COVID care from outpatient care to inpatient care to uh, post-discharge to uh, radiology, special populations like PEDS, OB, so on and so forth. And so uh, you know, it sort of evolved into this huge document that is a one-stop shop for information uh, for caring for COVID patients within the you know, scope of the military health system. And so th- that's uh, now on the, the USU website. It's also on the DHA website uh, and available. Uh, simultaneously, um, you know, as an intensivist, I, I needed to um, really stay in touch and, and reach out to all the intensivists in, in the military. And so we started a WhatsApp group, uh, group COVID group, and, um, you know, within a couple of weeks, it grew to about 200, 250 individuals. Fantastic. The way that we communicated, hey, we're starting to see an uptake in patients here in this area, and then we're comparing notes, trading you know, exchanging um, treatment protocols and and sharing new uh, emerging data as, as it came on. Um, you know, what I did was I, I uh, scanned my Twitter feed and uh, looked for any valuable information and basically cut and paste my Twitter feed into WhatsApp uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, uh, amplify information to those folks who weren't, aren't on Twitter. And so that that really helped a lot. Uh, on top of that, we um, also started having uh, case conferences, weekly case conferences that um, was hosted by the Joint Trauma System. And I don't know if we talked about this uh, in the last podcast. I think we did. Um, one of the ways we um, continued to evolve and improve uh, during combat operations uh, was uh, by sort of talking through cases and talking about um, how we managed certain, you know, patient uh, treatment uh, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, and um, and shared that information across the entire, you know, sort of uh, uh, system. And we were able to, by discussing these cases, um, uh, we were able to identify gaps in our knowledge and uh, fill those gaps and continue to improve and modify and refine our processes uh, over time. And so these case conferences uh, were an avenue for us to be able to continuously improve our processes, identify areas where we were weak, um, disseminate information when new, new information came on, uh, came, came online, uh, so on and so forth. And so uh, that, that was a very powerful uh, tool for us um, to really, number one, get on the same page, and number two, share our experiences and really learn from each other in the military health system. That's evolved tremendously. Now, um, 
you know, we, we started out uh, as a military, we're taking care of patients within our own health system, right? Mm. But also uh, as a military, uh, we're getting pulled out of our own institutions. We're trying to take care of COVID patients uh, amongst our ben- uh, beneficiaries, but we're also at the same time getting pulled to go on uh, missions to help support the civilian population. And so that, that was a constant tension uh, because you don't want to deplete an entire hospital. You know, if you have, you know, 90% military uh, physicians, you can't take all, you know, all the military physicians away because then you don't have a hospital to take care of the patients that, that you're, right. you know, assigned to. And so, you know, when the Javits Center uh, got stood up and the Comfort uh, was deployed, um, that's the hospital ship that went to New York. Uh, that was a big deal because it pulled a quarter of our uh, uh, physicians and nurses uh, out of, for example, Walter Reed. Um, and this happened across the military. Um, uh, but but that, that was uh, something to deal with. And then, and then when Texas uh, got hit, Southern California, um, Florida, uh, we, uh, we got tasked again. So the military ended up uh, sending a bunch of uh, teams, augmentation task forces and mm-hmm. response, rural, rural rapid response teams to a variety of different locations in, in Southern Texas in the border. And boy, the experience that they had taking care of those patients in, in those small community hospitals in, in um, the civilian sector was just, it, it's just uh, unimaginable what, what they had to go through. Um, and um, that, that was uh, sort of an evolution of uh, sort of uh, our role as a uh, uh, military medicine system uh, in support of, of COVID. And, you know, now we're dealing with the third wave. We're all bracing for, for that next uh, mass deployment to wherever we're needed. The, the problem is that um, geographically it's not, um, you know, confined to one state or another. It's widespread. So mm-hmm. uh, we're all try- scratching our heads trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen now. There's a lot of uncertainty for sure. Yeah, and I think that, you know, not just in medicine. Uh, the interesting thing I think is, and I wrote an, you know, again, inspired by you and you encouraged me to do this a year, a year ago about writing about some of my approaches in, in medical devices on the marketing side. I think what COVID is, is it, it accelerated a lot of trends that were already existing, but it accelerated them instead of over a span of 10 years within a year. And I think coming out of this, you know, this is the first time I think in human history that everybody in the world is rethinking everything. How do I, how do I take my kids to school? How do I stay healthy? How do I communicate with, with, with peers? You know, how do I work out from home? You know? And so I think coming out of this, we're going to, you know, at least here in the States, we're going to really redesign our world and society and upgrade our systems because a lot of the systems we're living in were designed by people who are all dead, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that's the benefit, but the most important thing is that we got to make it through this really tough period right now. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's tough. And again, you know, it's, it's inspiring to see uh, uh, healthcare leaders like yourself and all the nurses, doctors, and medical staff who are putting themselves at risk on the front lines to uh, help with things. But it, it is scary to see the spike. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation uh, before jumping on, 
some of the approaches uh, around blood purification. Now, I, I learned a lot from you about uh, ECMO, and you had this fascinating approach about using ECMO when it came to uh, cytokine storms. And I, a lot of people are familiar with the cytokine storms with COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how USC is approaching that and, and what, you, what you're starting to find? Yeah, thanks, Omar. And your comment um, about you know, technologies and capabilities being accelerated during times of crisis is uh, something that I, I truly, I mean, I take to heart. Uh, it's something that we've seen happen in wartime, mm-hmm. and we're now seeing it during a pandemic. Uh, every, you know, people are desperate for solutions. Uh, we don't have time to wait uh, for certain therapeutics to, to come online, uh, mm-hmm. logic or otherwise. And so uh, with regards to blood purification, as uh, we all know, uh, COVID uh, elicits a host response that's characterized by just uncontrolled inflammation um, that is uh, primarily focused on the lung, but then goes uh, throughout the entire body. And so um, with regards to blood purification, th- this is something, this is a story that actually starts uh, about 10 years ago, believe it or not. Um, there is uh, I don't know if you know about DARPA. It's Defense Advanced Research uh, Program uh, Agency. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, DARPA was uh, founded in the 50s after um, the United States uh, experienced Sputnik. You know, Sputnik uh, uh, represented a defeat technologically for the United States. Uh, the Russians beat us to space. And uh, at that time, the government vowed to never lose technologically ever again <laughs> foreign adversaries. And so they created this agency called DARPA. And DARPA, um, you may not know or may know, uh, provided seed funding for the internet, mm-hmm. provided seed funding for the Da Vinci robotic system. I was just going to say, all surgical robotics came yeah. out of the military. That's right. where so it, it started. Came out of, it came out of a DARPA seed program. And so... So um, one, a, a very little, uh, not well-known program called dialysis-like therapeutics. Uh, it's a small program uh, in relation to the others uh, for DARPA, $150 million. And the program called for technologies that could identify pathogen, regardless of whatever pathogen it was, bacteria, virus, whatever, and remove pathogens from the bloodstream real time, uh, regardless of the pathogen and treat the patient. So that was the program. Um, And uh, believe it or not, uh, I I think I talked to you about blood purification in the burn unit and how uh, studying high volume hemofiltration, did a multi-center trial and and so on and so forth. Well, I I learned over time that that's just not enough uh, blood purification for cytokine removal, for example. And so anyway, so that's uh, sort of foundational, uh, sort of laying the foundation there. So anyway, so I was involved as a DOD representative for this program as the DOD rep because they wanted, you know, they're trying to be fair and they're trying to uh, get input from uh, all aspects of government to include DOD medicine. And so I was involved as the, the subject matter expert on the DOD side. And this program uh, was a five-year program, uh, resulted in two technologies that sort of uh, became, uh, you know, because of the investment, they were able to uh, get close to transition into commercialization. And so they basically were the, the last two 
technology standing after evaluation uh, in this, within this uh, aspect of this program. And so that yielded two technologies, one of them uh, called Serif 100. Um, and both technologies do the same, relatively the same thing in terms of pathogen removal. That, that, that was the goal, right? And so the Serif 100, it's uh, manufactured and invented by a company called Xthera. Uh, it's a heparin sulfate-based technology where uh, heparin sulfate, which is a relative to heparin, uh, binds, uh, is bound to a bunch of beads, and it's basically a hemoperfusion cartridge. Uh, heparin sulfate is negatively charged, uh, mm-hmm. and believe it or not, it happens to be a major component of uh, the vascular endothelium and the glycocalyx. Glycocalyx exists to target uh, foreign substances like pathogens and right. present them to host cells, immune cells. Right. And so uh, this is considered a biomimetric uh, extracorporeal uh, extra blood purification device targeting pathogen removal specifically, okay? Fascinating. So essentially, yeah. it's, you're purifying in the, the blood and at the same time, arming the blood with the right tools to identify and eliminate pathogens. It is basically removing the pathogens specifically, directly. directly. Oh, direct, oh, directly. Yeah. So, so yeah. okay, even better. So, so as blood passes through this filter, uh, if there's any pathogens in the blood, circulating in the blood, whether it's bacteria from a bacteremia like Staph aureus, or, you know, in the case of COVID, COVID viremia, it will attract those pathogens and bind into this filter, hence providing intravascular source control that's non-pharmacologic and pathogen agnostic. That's unbelievable because essentially you don't, you get all the benefits of, of a pharmaceutical without the taxing of the body, the side effects or anything, and it's immediate. That's potentially, potentially. So, so that's the concept, right? So, so that's one technology, uh, the Serif 100. There's a second technology that's based on a protein called FCMBL. Okay, it's a proprietary protein. Uh, this technology was uh, created and invented by Wyss Institute, uh, W-Y-S-S mm. uh, Institute in Boston, uh, affiliated with Harvard. And this protein is essentially um, uh, mimicking naturally occurring opsonins. And if you know, if you think back to biology, opsonins are present in the body, circulating in the bloodstream to tag on to foreign invaders like bacteria to pre- present them to host immune cells, okay? That's, that's an opsonin. And so they took this protein, combined it with an FC portion of an immunoglobulin, and now uh, encoded this entire hollow fiber filter with this protein so that as blood is going through this filter, pathogens are attracted to, uh, to uh, the protein. Uh, and it turns out it's a mannose binding lectin is the uh, opsonin, um, protein. Mannose is present on pretty much every non-mammalian pathogen <laughs> cell, you know, so, so bacteria, gram-positive, gram-negatives, viruses, CMV, Ebola, these, these all have on, on their cell wall mannose, and uh, so this protein captures it, and that, that is a second technology. So, 
Fast forward, as these technologies were sort of coming into transitioning to the commercial sector, they were going through the IDE process, the investigational device exemption studies, first in human, so on and so forth. Uh, the Seraph 100 was a little bit further along. They had already received a CE mark. Uh, I knew about these technologies, obviously, because I've been involved with this, the DARPA program for 10 years. You know, I, I remember distinctly in November of 2019, having a conversation with one of the company folks. Uh, and I said, hey, you know, this is great because they were, were talking about, you know, how, how do we get this product studied and is it filling a, a need? And I, I told them, I was like, you know, shaking my head, you know, guys, this is an ec excellent technology uh, that's looking for a problem to solve. And I said this specifically, mm -hmm. quote, what you need is a pandemic uh, for your technology to take off. <laughs> I swear it was, uh, you know, next thing I know, three months later, what happens? The pandemic just takes over the country, right? Um, and so one of the, you know, as, as we were preparing for the wave of patients uh, in March, uh, I gave the company a call and said, hey, um, what do you think? Are you guys ready for human use? And um, obviously, you know, it was not FDA approved. So we had to go through the expanded access pathway. And so... Are you um, able to so what share that the, means is say are, you again? Say, are you able to share the name of the company? Uh, or? Yeah, Xterra. Xterra. Yeah. Xterra. Oh, X, how do you spell Xterra. that? Uh, e X T H E R A. So Got that's it. Company okay. and the technology is Seraf One Hundred. Got Seraf it. Okay. One Hundred. Anyway, so I uh, connected that the company uh, with and the technology with our nephrologists. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a exocorporeal blood purification. Uh, therapy and you know who 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 knows that better than the nephrologist, right? So, right, so yeah. nephrologist on board. Um, it was uh, uh, Dr. Jim Oliver, Colonel Jim Oliver, as well as uh, Stephen Olson got involved. They they evaluated the science behind what we were trying to do, um, learned about the DARPA program and so on and so forth. They became excited. They were like, "Okay, let's let's uh, be ready to treat patients if we need to." Uh, because at that time, if you remember, we had nothing. Right. The yeah. Therapeutics. Yeah. Uh, convalescent plasma was not in, exist uh, in existence. We were still unsure about steroids. Remdesivir was not available. Okay. We had hydroxychloroquine, which doesn't work. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, we, you know, my first 10 patients, we had everybody on hydroxychloroquine and it just uh, didn't do anything. Um, so we were desperate for a potential solution and we hypothesized that Patients were probably getting sick, transitioning from uh, isolated pneumonia to multi-organ failure because mm -hmm. of viremia. And, uh, you know, that was still a hypothesis at that point because we weren't sure. There, there weren't, we didn't have any studies to point to. And coronaviruses don't typically work that way. Uh, the, the cold, common cold, they don't disseminate intravascularly like that. Mm -hmm. Viremia is not a big deal. But since then... Uh, investigators have determined that there's a clear link between severity of illness and detection of virus RNA in the blood. Okay. Ah. So that connection. And so the higher the level of virus, uh, viral RNA, the, the sicker the patients. Um, and so there is this clear link. And so um, back then we didn't know this. So without that information, we said, we hypothesize that there's likely virus in the blood. This technology was invented exactly for this scenario for a pandemic like this. It's a medical countermeasure. 
Um, and as we started taking care of patients, we identified one patient who was just, uh, you know, in bad ARDS, in multi-organ failure and shock. And uh, we uh, approached the family. We talked to the FDA and they said that there's a, a compassionate use, you know, sort of pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we went through that pathway, did all the paperwork, got consents, obviously. Um, and the family was willing to, because we had no other options, right? So we're, we were desperate, treated the patient, remarkable clinical improvement. Uh, pressure just went from really high to very low, uh, pretty you know, temporarily related to the initiation of this extracorporeal therapy. Uh, we treated two additional patients, same kind of the, uh, deal. Uh, we presented and reported our case report um, uh, in critical care exploration. So that, that's out you know, for uh, the general public. And as a result of our very limited experience, I mean, we're not doing randomized controlled trials in the middle of a crisis right now. I mean, right. that, we didn't, and so very minimal experience there. And then 20 patients that have been treated in Europe and prior safety data all lumped in. The company submitted uh, a packet to the FDA for an EUA application and they got granted an EUA, uh, an emergency use authorization. And so, um, so now it's available for use um, uh, if the clinicians believe that it will help. Uh, there have been 70, over 70 therapies thus far. Um, the outcomes are pretty remarkable in a select patient population that, that uh, we're interested in. And uh, you, know, you can't just release a product like that that is um, quasi-experimental. It's, it's sort of a therapeutic that nobody's, you know, we have, there's no randomized controlled trials and not take that opportunity to study it. You, you gotta, you gotta study, we have a responsibility, an obligation, if we have a therapy that we're using on patients to see what's happening and collect data. And that's, that's our responsibility. And so uh, our group submitted for a grant uh, with uh, Health, Health Affairs, um, the CARES Act, that first supplemental that was released to um, a lot of it, a lot of those funds went to um, Operation Warp Speed Mm-hmm. Like a tune of like a billion plus dollars. Wow. We got a very small investment, about uh, $15 million to evaluate not only this therapy, but the, the DARPA technologies. We're calling it the Purify program um, after blood purification. It just makes sense. Uh, and we're systematically evaluating not only this technology, but plan to evaluate the Garnet, which is the FCNBL technology um, over time. First for COVID, because uh, we're in this emergency and, and we don't have a vaccine yet, so on and so forth. We don't have reliable therapies that is reversing things dramatically. Remdesivir is good, but decreases hospital days in patients on O2. Doesn't seem to help as much in patients that are already intubated. Um, so that, that's a problem. And then, um, and you know, obviously, steroids is, is something that uh, has found, been found to be helpful. So we're doing those things also, but this could be an adjunct to all that. Um, and we're going to evaluate it during the period of COVID, uh, and then we're going to then um, take take this technology. Uh, we've applied for uh, an investigational device exemption to do a pilot study in sepsis, in general sepsis, uh, with. Uh, evidence of circulating pathogens. So you have to have either a gram stain 
or PCR that detects some pathogen in the blood with septic shock, and uh, we're going to randomize them to therapy versus standard of care. Uh, and so that that is going to be the the pilot. And then if that's successful, we're planning on uh, a pivotal trial to bring this on on the market. Uh, so that it takes a while for that to happen, right? Yeah, of and if this was non-pandemic conditions, all this probably would take, you know, with funding, planning the trials, would take you know, five to seven, eight years. Right, right. All that, that condense into eight months. And here we are, we have a protocol for the observational. So we're calling it Purify OBS to evaluate the data, collect data on the 70 plus patients that have been treated thus far. Uh, we're going to compare that to uh, probably a, a retrospective cohort, a contemporaneous cohort, and and be able to compare that way since we couldn't do a randomized control trial from the get-go. Um, so, uh, so that's going to provide us some information and, uh, really, you know, what we're talking about here is an entirely different way of attacking sepsis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, instead of, you know, most therapies are, you know, antimicrobials excluded antimicrobials, you know, are, uh, and antivirals are, are basically addressing this, the pathogen, right? Um, however, we know that, uh, with the emergence of drug resistance, we have lots of extremely drug resistant pathogens out there for in terms of anti, in, in terms of bacteria. And then you know in, in when we're, when dealing with a virus that is a novel virus, um, you don't have any you know immediate therapies. Uh, so um, I see this as an adjunct therapy to either existing or proposed, pharmacologic solutions that can be synergistic uh, together and uh, in, in terms of addressing and uh, achieving source control in, in the blood, bloodstream. And so, um, you know, if this type of approach is helpful, then it could be among the first uh, therapies that could be our first line of defense for unknown emerging pathogens in the future. It's amazing. We don't have a therapy because it's new. You know what I mean? Right. And, um, and, and this, this therapeutic, because it's a, like, again, it's a non-pharmacologic pathogen agnostic excorporeal blood remo uh, pathogen removal device. It doesn't matter what the bug is. It doesn't matter what the virus is. If it circulates in the blood, it will remove it. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And so th that's the concept behind this entire program that is now just coming to fruition as a result of this, you know, incredible crisis that we're all experiencing. Right. And, and again, it's, you know, I, uh, I, it wasn't much of a prediction, but I predicted many, many months ago uh, in the early spring that, you know, the, we would see just unbelievable American innovation and ingenuity as a result of the pandemic. And we're seeing that now. And, I mean, we're, we're, we're suffering a lot of loss because of it, but in the future, I mean, who knows? I mean, w there's going to be another threat of a pandemic of some type, I'm sure, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, and it may not even have a, a dent on, on, on our society because we're able to use these types of approaches, which is just, you know, remarkable. And you, you, you helped me out here because uh, <laughs> when I posted earlier this week, 
about having you on, uh, uh, Dr. Ashish Khanna, who's the uh, head of research for anesthesiology and critical care over at Wake Forest, specifically asked about innovation and therapies in the septic shock area. So we, we, we got that one for you, Dr. Khanna. <laughs> but that's, that's just awesome. absolutely remarkable. And what, what's really f- interesting, uh, 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 Dr. Chong, is it's, it's interesting that, you know, Northwell did a, did a study with about 9,000 patients recently and found that something like 38, 39% of them end up with acute kidney injury. And who, who would have thought that while that was coming out months prior that you, you were able to th- think about this uh, therapeutic approach with the dial, uh, with dialysis and with nephrologists, right? And it just happened yep. to coincidentally, I don't believe in coincidences anymore, go yep. hand in hand, you know? Yep. And this is just- yeah, we were- Oh, go ahead. Yeah, we were ideally positioned to to um, to do this and bring in the nephrologist, but you know, to 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 just uh, you know for, for go off on on that point and and you know from, uh, you know just address that point uh, specifically. Um, you know, this technology potentially prevents AKI um, be, because really AKI occurs. Um, within the context of the host response to circulating pathogen and the dysregulated host response that, that results in end organ injury. Well, we're trying to nip that in the bud before it happens. Right. Uh, this therapy. And so the, I, I sort of alluded to the, uh, out of the seven, 70 patients that have been treated alluded to a subpopulation that, um, that seemed to benefit the most. Uh, I'm not going to, uh, you know, sort of, divulge any secrets now, but um, there is a cohort of patients that were treated, uh, initiated on this therapy as they were transitioning from high flow nasal cannula to mechanical ventilation somewhere during that period and placed on that therapy. And it seems to have an impact in that population specifically. Um, The reason this happened, you know, I think I can talk about this in generalities without uh, without uh, any HIPAA violations, but in generalities, there was a uh, clinician who was sick with COVID, who happened to know about this technology, and asked for this therapy in place of being intubated. Fascinating, and uh, were, was uh, able to leave the hospital a week later. Wow! And he he was uh, getting ready to be intubated. You know. And he was like, wait, 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 wait. And so that, that, that was a you know, light bulb moment. Everybody sort of started paying attention because that case was shared with everybody that had an interest in this technology. Uh, and then in, in that specific center, uh, another healthcare provider was treated prior to getting intubated. And then another and another and another. And that's how it sort of grew. I never imagined that that would be the patient population. Uh, but in uh, the majority of those cases, those patients, not only do they not, um, if they were not on the vent before that prevents intubation, mm-hmm. if an event that gets them off the ventilator quickly, none of them, um, you know, they, they, they don't have end organ damage, you know, extra pulmonary end organ damage like AKI. Uh, and we believe that it's because we're able to achieve source control. And, and, and this is as an adjunctive therapy to remdesivir. So it is, uh, we believe that an antiviral plus this therapy, this approach, um, is better than an antiviral alone. 
I, there's a synergy that occurs that uh, that uh, that I think that exists that that we're find out. Uh, you know, when we do when we look at the data, hopefully, um, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to report our results uh, of the purify uh, groups of studies. And the first phase, as I said, is purify OBS, and um, that that's on clinicaltrials.gov. It's already registered. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, in fact, I, um, you know, I, I should probably mention, uh, I don't know if you know about Kidney360. It's the open access journal to the American Society of Nephrology. Yes, they just launched that, so, yes. Yeah, so Steve Olson and I uh, were invited to, to write an uh, editorial, a pro uh, piece on uh, why we thought extracorporeal blood purification could be helpful uh, in COVID and, and beyond. And um, it's probably going to be um, you know, released here uh, any minute, uh, any day now, Fantastic. and it should be available uh, to read. Uh, Obviously, sort of I mean, please, please, please that out for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to be respectful of your of your time, and the one other thing I want to touch on, which we can we can spend many hours discussing, but just kind of want to get your feedback on it. You know, a lot of discussion about uh, a vaccine coming out. Right. And there there there's, you know, diff differing opinions about that. And then, yeah. of course, uh, the concept of herd immunity. Yeah. Two really big topics. But, you know, for the most part, what, what's your what's your take on it as a, as a physician and, and, a, and a healthcare leader who's, who's dealing yeah. with this on the very front lines of this? Yeah. So I should probably make the statement uh, right off the bat that herd immunity without vaccination, a vaccination program is going to kill a lot of people. Um, Tell us why, because I want people to understand this. Yeah, because in order to achieve herd immunity, a certain percentage of the population has to get infected so that they can have their natural immune system be the defense and thus uh, acquire immunity. In order for, for us to achieve that, 60%, 70% uh, infected in the population, um, let's say mortality is 1%. We're talking about millions of deaths. Right. I don't know if we have the the, we, there's no way we can tolerate that. Uh, you know, a better way of achi achieving herd immunity is uh, having a like we're doing a mass vaccine uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. Vaccine is what achieves the immunity, mm -hmm. and enough of a patient, you know, enough of a percentage of the population. Uh, become immune as a result of that vaccine. Mm. And the vaccine protects them from dying, and so you know. And then and, you can get closer to herd immunity because of that. Yeah, and you can get closer to herd immunity, and you can snuff out the virus because you can't transmit it to anybody. And so that's how you achieve herd immunity by vaccination, not by natural ways, natural right. infection. That's just that's that is a very flawed way of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, you're completely disregarding how many patients will die as a result of that approach. Right. And I think you said something so important. And again, I haven't monitored everybody uh, talking about this, but you're the first person that I've heard who conveyed it this way, where it's not only herd immunity. It's not only the vaccine. It's the combo of the two. And it's, it's again, coincidentally, it's similar to what we just discussed, where it's not the therapeutic by itself. It's not the pharmaceutical. It's a combination of the two that there's a synergistic effect. And I think the American public, the, the sooner they start to understand this, then th I think they'll, they'll start to really appreciate it. Again, I've always said like medicine and healthcare has always had a marketing problem. And hopefully 
you know, this yeah. is something that can be solved. But I, I love that you it, literally in a few seconds, you conveyed it in a most, you know, convincing and, and understandable way. Yeah. One thing I should say also about the vaccines that are coming out, you know, I, there's a lot of misinformation out there about uh, not, mm-hmm. not only the effectiveness of vaccines, but also the side effect profile of vaccines. And there's an entire movement, as we all know, the anti-vax movement uh, that has really caught uh, a lot of momentum. And I, I, I see comments that that um, populate my my um, my feed of folks that don't really, really trust um, vaccines in general and don't trust, won't trust and, and plan to not trust the vaccine that's coming out. What I can say is that, you know, I think the FDA and, and these companies that are producing these vaccines, although, you know, the the studies have been accelerated, mm-hmm. they're not they're not taking any shortcuts. I mean, they're, they did their phase one and two, they did their phase, they're doing their phase three, they're collecting the data, they're looking at all the side effects. Um, yes, they're gonna apply for an emergency use authorization, but that's because people are dying left and right. We need to do something. Uh, and so I'm a little bit concerned that people are going to be very hesitant to, to, to take the vaccine. Uh, however, the thing that is encouraging, you know, I'm, Technically and officially not political because I, I, I can't be, you know, I'm, I'm in, in, the, uh, in the military. Um, what I'm seeing is a celebration of this advance from both sides. Right. And the right or the middle, you know, everybody's celebrating this as being a huge advance. And that gives me a little hope because maybe just maybe we could all have a unified can you know, campaign to push this vaccine and make sure that everybody's covered so that we can save lives. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I think um, I, I was uh, having a, a virtual meeting with uh, Dr. Bob Watcher, mm. uh, uh, the chair of uh, UCSF and Dr. Mark Anderson from Johns Hopkins. And we were talking about this and uh, it got brought up that, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe what we can do as a community is healthcare providers are probably going to be among the first people to to get these vaccines. Maybe we should uh, start a mass social media marketing campaign showing ourselves getting the vaccine and, and like literally showing people, hey, we're we're healthcare providers. We're getting the vaccine. If it's safe for us, it's going to be safe for you. And then just spread it that way because we need to do something to get everybody on the same page. And I, you know, I think that was a great idea. I was absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, one of the uh, great books that I, I love to read. It's it's an older book, but it's it's called Diffusion of Innovations. And this gentleman, he's he's since passed away. Studied a lot of how how innovation diffuses, and and one of those big things is social proof. You have to see other people adopting it, and everything. And I think you know. Um, like you, I'm I'm I, I'm very neutral and moderate. I I say I, I claim no political party. I'm just a cynical observer of American politics, but I think I I can understand the Americans who are skeptical because I think and and I tell people unfortunately in a pandemic it's something that's hurting us. But something that's a feature of being an American is we don't listen to authority. We have a lot of entrepreneurs and business because of that. But again, in a pandemic, that's hurt us a lot. And I think that there's been an even bigger resistance because, and I see it on Instagram, on Facebook, people posting it where private companies like uh, like the movies, movie theaters, or other places will say, we will not 
you know, allow you in or do business with you or do this or that unless you show proof of that vaccine. And I think yeah. most Americans, they get tense saying, well, what do you mean you're going to tell me what I can do? Yeah. And I think that this, you know, seeing uh, again on both sides, Joe Biden and Donald Trump celebrate, you know, a vaccine. I think uh, having more healthcare professionals talk about and educate the public, that's what needs to happen. And at least from a marketing standpoint, those are the people that uh, need to be leading this, not the private sector, because if there's something that every American feels is they don't trust, they don't trust private industry or, yeah. or, or corporations. And so I think um, uh, it makes me very happy and hopeful to hear you say that because at least there's a way that, you know, the majority of the population will, will be open to the vaccinate to vaccinations. And those, those who, who can, who choose not to be, hopefully there's enough uh, of the people who get vaccinated that we can get closer to that, to that herd immunity. So, you know, it, it, I'm, again, I'm very relieved and happy to hear that it's going to be a combo of these two things, yeah. right. You know, and, and it's, and again, from a risk management standpoint, that's the better way to go and not saying it's only this or it's only that. Yeah, there's, um, it, you know, it's definitely encouraging and there's definitely hope on the horizon. Um, uh, I hope that a year from now, uh, you know, the economy is going to be completely opened up. You know, COVID numbers are going to be near zero because of that herd immunity that, that has been achieved. Uh, and uh, we're going to be moving on with our lives. And, um, you know, boy, it's hard to really imagine that happening right now, isn't, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, of all the uh, stress and what what we're seeing in, in the hospitals all over the country is just um, just heartbreaking. Uh, re- reading uh, about what my colleagues are going through, and I'm about to um, start my uh, five day five nights of ICU uh, shifts here this weekend, and um, uh, I'm going to get back and 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 I already know that they're already starting to get um, uh, not overwhelmed yet, but um, starting to get an increased uptick in, in COVID patients. That's pretty significant, much more so than it was in the spring. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's hard to, to see sort of light at the end of the tunnel just because we're, we're in the fog of war right now, so to speak. Um, and yep. it, you know, I told my wife that like this, it hasn't even been a year, but it, it feels like we've been doing this for a long time. Um, yep. but I, 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 maybe I'm op- I'm too optimistic, but I, I really believe that, uh, what we're going through 2020 as a world, but, you know, for, for us as a country, it's, it's in a, in its own way, ushering in a golden age of how we look at our systems from healthcare to economics, to businesses, communications, everything. And as soon as we make it, you know, on the out, out, out the other end, I think we're going to see just, um, you know, the next level of what America can be. And I think it's gonna be really fantastic, but we gotta, we gotta unify it as a country and make it through this as well. Yeah, um, I agree with you. Yeah. Well, Dr. John, hey, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, I'm going to selfishly have you back on again, uh, just because, you know, if there's ways that we can amplify uh, thought leaders like yourself, people who we should be listening to when, when it comes to how we should think about medicine and science, um, it's, it's incredibly invaluable. And we, we, again, we appreciate your, your bravery and service and leadership in our country during these times. Yeah, thanks, Omar, for the opportunity. Again, I, I very much enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you again. Um, Stay on for a second. We'll chat. And uh, thank you all for listening. This has been Hills and Valleys. Check the show notes. I'm going to leave some of the links that Dr. Chung's mentioned along with his Twitter handle. So be sure to follow him and we will see you next time. Bye for now.
Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.